погляд ваш неначе материнський, і щось у серці стиснулось мені. Ну як там дома, чи цвіте калина, чи пахнуть чебриці з пориші? Мене забула, мабуть, Україна, яка живе, живе в моїй душі. Ну як там дома, чи цвіте калина, чи пахнуть чебриці з пориші. popular and prolific singer from Ukraine by the name of Anichka. She is uh, Lemko, actually, and uh, has produced some incredible musical works, including that last, that song you just heard, Pohovorit Zimnoye Povkrinske, which translates as Speak to Me in Ukrainian, and that is the title track from her album, Pohovorit Zimnoye Povkrinske. Dobrý večer i vítajú vás všich do rýchy rádiu Suchači na rádioprogramu Náš holos Rádiu Krínského Koríňa, ktorá podiaci vám na bohatomovní rádiostancii AM 1320 CHMB v místi Vancouveri. Pri mikrofóni Pavlina ďakujú, že rýšala prebúte zi mnoju na stupňu hodenu. Hello there and welcome to Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio here on AM 1320 CHMB Vancouver. I'm your host Pavlina. Thank you so much for joining me for the next hour. On today's program, we have a new voice from here in Vancouver who will be contributing a fascinating commentary about current affairs locally as well. From the audio archives, Ukrainian Jewish Heritage will be taking a look at a courageous and truly intrepid Canadian journalist who exposed the truth about the Holodomor at a time when major media was denying it. And since next Saturday is Holodomor Remembrance Day, I thought this was a fitting time to hear this story again. 
As well, we'll have our usual proverb of the week, other items of interest, and great Ukrainian music. And coming up next is a brand new tune. This was shared with us by Vasil Pavlovsky of Cultural Capsule here on Holos, and it is performed by some of his friends, including a group called CC Beats, and it has been nominated for a Grammy Award. It is called My Heart Goes Out to Ukraine.
Russianas. Ukraine is under deadly attack, and Ukraine War Amps is asking for your help with a tax-deductible donation today. Funds are desperately needed by Ukrainian defenders for bulletproof jackets, helmets, walkie-talkies, food, water and gas, and by civilians, including children, for food, water and medications, and when possible, escape to safety. Please donate today to Ukraine War Amps via PayPal, e-transfer to ukrainewaramps at gmail.com, or visit ukrainewaramps.ca. Thanks to the foresight and generosity of its donors, the Shevchenko Foundation has been investing in the future of the Ukrainian-Canadian community for over 50 years. Since 1963, the Shevchenko Foundation has been funding initiatives that strengthen our Ukrainian-Canadian identity and enhance our Ukrainian-Canadian cultural heritage. These include fine and performing arts and arts groups, museums, cultural centers, education, as well as authors, journalists, and the Ukrainian-Canadian media, including this program. The foundation strives to become the premier not-for-profit foundation in a Canada which acknowledges the Ukrainian-Canadian community as a fundamental component of Canadian society. Nash Hollis listeners are encouraged to support this vision through continued donations into the future. To apply for grants, make a donation, or for more information, visit ShochenkoFoundation.com. Чорная кава зале, тільки я кину місто кохане своє, всюди за мною буде блукати в світах чорної кави, запах, яким я пропав. Із коханою чорна яка звела, всі перепони, що були між нами, смела, чорна якава в жилах у мене пливе, наше кохання у чорнікаві живе. Чорна кава, це львівських вулиць напів. Чорна кава, це вечір розкішний мій. Чорну каву зі мною, мій друже, В чорній каві і нині приснав Кав'ярні млосно морають жінки, в львівській кав'ярні вчуєш останні плітки, хтось від дощу у кав'ярні рятунку шукав, хтось від сім'ї і печалі на каву тіка. Чорна кава, це львівських вулиць напів. Чорна кава, це вечір розкішний мій. Чорну каву зі мною, мій друже, пій. В чорній каві і нині приснажи. Чорна кава, це львівських вулиць напій. Чорна кава, це вечір розкішний. Чорну каву зі мною, мій друже, пий. В чорній каві і нині приснажи.
From Toronto and formerly from Ukraine and very famously so, that was Viktor Morozov and Chorinakava, Black Coffee. Olena is a proud Ukrainian-Canadian. She immigrated to Canada in 2009, but in recent years had been staying in Ukraine. In March of 2022, Olena returned to Canada from Ukraine because of the war. Soon after arriving back in Canada, she joined a project supporting Ukrainians displaced by war. Olena is a mother of two active kids and an enthusiastic community connector here in Vancouver. Previously, she worked in the film industry and as a language teacher of English and Korean. The following commentary is adapted from a speech Olena delivered to the Canadian Border Services Agency at a recent fundraising event in Vancouver. People plan, people dream. I, like many Ukrainians, was planning and thinking of what to plant in my garden in the spring of 2022. My mom had a small piece of land near the river Tisenka in Kyiv. I purchased a cherry blossom tree and a white magnolia. This was a part of my plan to create a small garden, something peaceful and quiet. I dreamed of getting a small wooden boat and fishing with my children all summer. My extended stay in Ukraine became my mission to teach languages, and this was a chance to reconnect with my motherland and contribute. But in February 2022, everything changed. I started getting emails from the Canadian government. They were warning about the risks of the invasion and advised to leave the country as soon as possible. The war shelter trainings in daycares began and I felt my responsibility as a mother to make an emergency decision. I booked return tickets to Sweden to visit my best friend, just in case. The same day, I remember packing a small suitcase for the three of us, but it took me all night. The plane was in the morning. I could not sleep. I was scared of the uncertainty and frightened by the real possibility of war in Ukraine. The Ukrainian border officer at the airport asked me if I was okay, because I began crying. It was hard not to. He reassured me that everything was going to be fine. Three days after we arrived, my friend Julia ran into our guest room with tears and screaming. It started. They're bombing our cities. Ukraine was under attack. I made no preparations to go back to Canada. I didn't want to stay in Sweden, and I had two little children to care for. But I was considered the lucky one. We fled right before the war started. I'm also Canadian, had some friends, a Ukrainian community, and the church. The Holy Eucharist Cathedral in New Westminster helped me immensely when we arrived, literally with everything. The organization within the church helped my parents, and hundreds of other people to find temporary and long-term accommodation when they arrived in BC. Many Ukrainians lost their plans and dreams for the future. The war has been destroying their houses, their lives, the lives of their relatives, and their land. Instead of spring rain nurturing the soil, they experienced rockets flying from the sky. Instead of listening to the birds singing in the morning, all they heard was bombing and sirens. Instead of planning their summer vacations, they were searching for shelters and safe havens. Through my work, I met Jan, the United Way BC volunteer host, and her Ukrainian guest, Oksana. Oksana was a TV director at one of the popular TV stations in Kyiv, Ukraine. 20 minutes after the first shell bombing on February 24th, she was off to work for the morning news. She was on the air with the first news about the war. She told me her colleague fainted in a newsroom live when she heard about the plane crashing into the residential building. The building was close to where her child was at the time. The situation was becoming critical and they decided that Oksana and her children would flee to Europe. Cameraman by profession, her husband joined the Ukrainian army. 
Oksana and the children spent many hours on the trains before crossing the border. She said the trains packed with people were going slowly and everyone was exhausted. They had to stand in the corridor of the train for 10 hours as there was nowhere to sit. Finally, they got to Poland, then Estonia, then to Sweden. They didn't have much savings. Right before the war, they had just paid off their two-bedroom apartment. They renovated from scratch. In Sweden, Oksana worked cleaning rooms in a hotel. She was waiting for several months for their emergency visas. Elvira from the Ukrainian organization Help Us Help Ukraine helped Oksana to find the host Jen. Jen helped Oksana find her first Canadian job and with schools for the children. Oksana studies English and plans to buy a car now. She says she is thankful for all of the support she has received in Canada. It helps her find hope and she can plan and arrange life here before her trip back to Ukraine. I met Alexander at the church. Alexander is a pensioner and the survivor of the Russian occupation. In a village near Kiev, he saw it all. He saw tanks crashing the fences and parking in people's yards. He saw bodies of tortured neighbors and told me about things that made me freeze inside. He and his wife survived and made it across the Polish border. In Poland, they met their daughter and their granddaughter that managed to flee right before the occupation. Altogether, they joined their relative in Canada. The first thing Alexander enjoyed in Vancouver was silence. No more shell bombing. Alexander and his family are not alone. Ukrainian community, the Holy Eucharist Cathedral, and organizations like United Way BC support them. They are successfully adapting to their new life. Alexander takes language classes and works part-time as a mechanic. He especially enjoys studying English with his granddaughter. He is amazed by diversity of Vancouver and the beautiful nature. He also appreciates kind and smiling British Columbians and the readiness to help. But he wants to go back to Ukraine, to his half-destroyed house, and rebuild it when the war is over. He now has an opportunity to plan and dream. He says he feels safe and supported. I just told you three stories, but there are so many, thousands, millions of stories. They're real stories of people that survived the occupation and saw things that no one should see or experience in 21st century. Thousands of Ukrainians arrived in Canada in shock. They're dealing with traumatic memories every day. They feel lost in new communities. They don't know where to begin and how to continue living after experiencing this war at different levels and degrees. At the beginning, I told you about the Ukrainian border officer. And in the end, I will tell you about the Canadian one. At the YVR airport, we were physically and emotionally tired. And I remember how much it meant to me to hear from the officer. Welcome home. I hope that whether Ukrainians are in Canada temporarily or decide to continue building their lives here, we can help them to feel at home. Their plans and dreams were crushed by rockets and bombs, but they survived. And now they have this opportunity to develop and achieve their goals. And they need support. Slava Ukraini! Glory to Ukraine! Slava Heroim! Glory to the heroes! That was Olena from Vancouver describing life for Ukrainian refugees fleeing war in their homeland. As an enthusiastic community connector, Olena has many more stories and information to share with listeners of Nasholus in the weeks, months, and hopefully years ahead.
And popular Ukrainian-American group Fata Morgana with Nezavadui, Do Not Envy. Before the break, you heard Zubriuka from Toronto with Uvishnevamusadu in the Cherry Orchard. And now, Ukrainian Jewish heritage on Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio. Discovering unknown and untold stories from the past and present of Ukraine's rich Jewish heritage. This is Paulina, producer and host of Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio. Ria Kleiman is a journalist who is little known today in the Jewish or Ukrainian communities, or for that matter, by Canadians in general. But in her day, this intrepid journalist from Toronto reached international acclaim for her coverage of the Soviet Union, including the 1932-33 man-made Ukrainian famine known as the Holodomor, and the rise of Nazi Germany. Yaris Balan is the director of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Alberta, where he is also the coordinator of the Cool Ukrainian Canadian Studies Centre. During his research on the Holodomor, Yaris stumbled onto Ria's reports. He was instantly intrigued by her story and began to research her life and work. He has since spoken about Ria Kleiman extensively and is currently working on her biography. Yours kindly agreed to tell us about his work, as well as the work of this remarkable Jewish-Canadian journalist. So, Yaris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, Rhea Kleiman, I uh, just recently found out about her. And how did you find out about her? I mean, it was during your research, but was there some something specific? Because I had done a lot of research, although not as much as you, because I'm not an academic. But I had never heard of her. Well, this is kind of a serendipitous find in the course of doing other research. The cool Ukrainian-Canadian Studies Centre at CIUS was doing research on the history of Ukrainians in Canada in the interwar period. And uh, we went through archives and various sources, the Edmonton newspapers, the Edmonton Journal and the Edmonton Bulletin, for certain years, in the interwar years. And I specifically chose 1932-33 because I wanted to know what did the Canadian mainstream newspapers report about what was going on in the Soviet Union. The impression is that the community felt that the Soviets did such a good job of suppressing the information that nobody knew about the famine until after the Second World War and when immigrants came from Central and Eastern Ukraine and areas that were affected by the famine who started writing and talking about their experiences. Right. What we discovered shocked us, actually, that there was lots of coverage about the Soviet Union in the Edmonton Journal and the Edmonton Bulletin. Those we had to go through, you know, looking at microfilms, hiring somebody to go page by page by page and pull all the Ukrainian content. But uh, the Toronto Star and the uh, Globe and Mail are now available as searchable databases. So we went into those and found an incredible amount of information. I mean, in the Toronto Star and the Globe, the Star in particular, there were almost every day of the week, there were five, six, seven items related to the Soviet Union. Front page news story, uh, a couple of a human interest story, a letter to the editor, an editorial or an opinion piece. All kinds of stuff. And in amongst all of that, there were lots of references to the disaster of collectivization and the problems with the five-year plan, as well as all kinds of spin that presented it all in a very positive light. So there was a mixture of good and bad. When that happened, I also began to realize that depending on the newspaper, the spin was different. So the Toronto Star was very liberal and sort of soft on the Soviet Union. Right. The Globe was more conservative. And I thought, well, you know, at that point, Toronto had five newspapers, including the Toronto Telegram. Mm -hmm. So I I then uh, hired a couple of students at Trent University and said, could you go through 1932-33, page by page, because it's not available searchable, but uh, looking looking at microfilm. Well, these students worked for a month or so and then threw the towel in because you have to really love that kind of research to sit there uh, going through newspapers. I do. But (laughs) one one, one of the students found three or four articles in what was obviously a series by Rhea Kleiman, who I'd never heard of. So uh, after the students threw in the towel, I managed to find some money, and I hired my colleague and friend, Dr. Sidhit Chipkov, who was the assistant director of CIUS, to go through, first of all, 1933, and that's where we found 21 articles by Rhea about this incredible trip she made through the famine lands as it was billed, and then I had him go back to 1932, And there was another 21 article or 22 article series about her trip that she made just before that to the far north and seeing the 
prisoners being used as slave labor in the mines and in the forests. And she wrote a series of articles about that. So that was where, where it started. And then from that, I then began doing more digging to find out about her background, who she was, how she ended up there. And the story just became more and more and more interesting. She was a very interesting person. I mean, she was born in Poland, I guess, as a child, came to Canada in that first wave of of immigration from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And she started out life with a disadvantage. Yeah, she came from a very poor immigrant family. We've learned a little bit more literally in the last few weeks even. Her father and mother emigrated in 1906 when she was two years old. And uh, she had two older brothers who were with her as well. And they settled in the north end of Toronto, just north of Dundas Street and uh, just off Young Street, just north of the downtown, in a very poor neighborhood. I've got photographs of what the street she lived on looked like in those days. Slum housing, factories, you know, right next door, this kind of thing. So they were dirt poor. Uh, They moved after a number of years, but uh, her early years were, were very difficult because she was six years old and she fell under a streetcar trying to get on a streetcar following a Victoria Day parade. And they amputated her left leg below her knee. So she was in and out of hospital for months and actually years, because, of course, as she was growing, they had to adjust the prosthesis and stuff. But she was a tough little girl and uh, also obviously very naturally bright. And one of the people who visited her was a man named Robertson, who was the editor and the publisher of the Toronto Telegram. And he was also a philanthropist who supported Sick Kids Hospital, where she was. And he began talking with her, and he asked her once, you know, what would you like to do when you grow up? He said, I want to be a writer like a journalist. And he gave her a copy of the Bible, (laughs) the King James edition, I guess, and said, you know, read this, you'll learn everything you need to know about writing. (laughs) But she was very determined, and he looked in on her periodically. And then the next horrible thing that happened to her was her father died when she was 11. And that left the mother now with six kids. There's another three were born in Canada. And so Rhea, at the age of 11, went to work in a factory and was taking some classes, you know, in the evening or whatever. Basically managed to then take some secretarial courses when she was a teenager and learned how to be a stenographer secretary, a practical thing, so she could help Mm -hmm. support the family. I've learned since that her mother was actually illiterate. Huh. I just got a few weeks ago a copy of an attempt. She applied to get a Canadian birth certificate in 1927, just before she was going to Europe. And on it, uh, the first thing is she already spelled her name C-L-Y-M-A-N, but the original spelling was K-L-E-I-M-A-N. And they scratched out her C-L-Y name on it. And on the form, her mother, who signed with an X, because it was submitted on her mother's behalf, Mm -hmm. it stated that she was born in Toronto and delivered by a midwife probably to simplify matters. So she got a birth certificate, I guess, saying that she was born in Toronto, when in actual fact she wasn't. The application also indicates that her father worked as a junk dealer. So this is, we're talking a woman who grew up in very difficult circumstances, but was very determined, and um, she was ambitious, and she wanted to see the world. So she moved in 1925 to New York and got a job working for a psychoanalyst. I have a feeling she was either a receptionist or just a secretary. Mm -hmm. She certainly wasn't doing psychoanalytic work. But it was probably while she was in New York that she got involved with radicals of her generation. This was a time when there's all kinds of propaganda about how wonderful the Soviet Union was, women had equal rights. And so a lot of young people, and many of them Jewish women too, uh, were attracted to it. And she set her as her goal. She wanted to go see this new society that was being born uh, across the ocean. So she managed to get a job first in London, working for, of all things, the Alberta government. In London? Uh, do, yeah, doing public relations. So she worked out of Canada House. The Alberta government had an office then, as I believe it still does now, that promotes tourism, investment, awareness of Alberta uh-huh. and Great Britain. And so she worked there for a year. Uh, this is a great job when you think about it. She's gone from New York to London. It's an exciting, big international capital. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but her goal was to go east. And so she applied and got a student visa to study French in Paris, French language courses at the Sorbonne for three months, and at the same time was teaching English on the side to help pay her expenses. After her student visa ran out, she didn't go back to London, much to the consternation of her friends who thought she was crazy. You know, uh, you got a great job here, you got friends here and stuff, but she thought it was too easy. Uh-huh. She pushed on to Germany. Now, this is 1928 now, and the Nazis haven't come to power yet, but they're surging in popularity. There's clashes between them and the left, the Bolsheviks, the communists. 
it's a very dynamic time, exciting time. She picked up a bit of German, and while she was in Germany, she got news that the visa that she applied to go to the Soviet Union finally came through. And so she got a copy of her visa in Berlin and jumped on a train on December 28, 1928, for Moscow. Now, there's evidence that she was actually a member of the Communist Party by this time. Hmm. Uh, she might have actually joined it in New York or certainly in Britain. There's a reference in some intelligence intercepts to her being a courier for the Communist Party hmm. uh, activists there. That certainly would have helped her get permission to go to the Soviet Union. But she got her papers. She shows up in Moscow. She's 24 years old. She uh, doesn't speak the language. She knows nobody. She hasn't even booked a hotel or anything. Wow. And she's got $75 or 15 pounds sterling to her name. Huh. Uh, you know, so not a lot of money. She's wandering around the main train station, and this guy notices her and sees that she could use some help. And so he steered her across the street to a hotel where there was a correspondent with a Chicago newspaper who was there with his wife. She spent the first night sleeping in their bathtub. <laughs> and uh, they helped her find a place to stay, and it looks like they also introduced her to Walter Durante of the New York Times. Wow. notorious Mr. Durante. I was just going to say, Aris, like they had that one thing in common was they were both amputees, but their reportage really diverged. Well, when uh, Rhea went to work for him, she went as his assistant. Huh. So she probably did a lot of running around, you know, doing a variety of things. There's an open question because, you know, Durante was an unseemly character. He was into drugs and orgies and yeah. all kinds of things. Yeah. He had all kinds of affairs with young women. In some cases, the women threw themselves at him. It's unclear whether she got the job because she submitted to his advances or not. But she used the opportunity to learn Russian. She had a gift for languages. And she also learned how to craft newspaper stories from him. And mm. after nine months working for him, she was in a position where she could start selling her own stories to newspapers, chiefly the London Daily Express, which is owned by a fellow Canadian, Lord Beaverbrook. Hmm. So her stuff started appearing there, but she didn't get a byline. It was just from our special correspondent. It was never identified with her. But she had to navigate the vagaries of dealing with the Soviet censorship. You had to be very careful with the stuff, cause the, the stuff that you sent out of the country because the censor didn't like it. You'd get into trouble. They'd cut stuff or they could kick you out. She was able to do that, so by late 1929, she's already supporting herself freelancing. She moved in with a, an ordinary Russian family in what's called a kommunalka, or communal apartment. There were 14 people living in basically three rooms. She had one room to herself. They shared a kitchen, they shared a bathroom. And, of course, she could pay in hard currency because she was paid in pounds. Right. And she had access to stores that foreigners could get access to that regular Russian citizens couldn't. So mm -hmm. she was able to help them, but it gave her a sense of how, in this worker state, what life was like for an ordinary worker. It was hard. It was brutal. They were you know, living in these horrible conditions. So she really got a rude awakening. It was gradual, and it's, it's unclear when she began to see the light. She went thinking that, well, you know, women <laughs> have achieved equality here. Yeah. Workers are in power here. They're modernizing. This is the future planned economy. This is where the world is going, and they're ahead of everybody. Gradually, she began to realize what a horror story uh, the Bolsheviks were creating there. She decided to make this trip to the far north in 1932, because, of course, there are all these reports about how the Soviets were using political prisoners as slave labor mm -hmm. in the forests, harvesting timber and processing it. And this was a time when Canada was losing its timber market in Great Britain. The Brits were starting to buy a lot of timber from the Soviets because it was cheap. Hmm. And of course, the argument was is that, hey, well, of course it's cheap. They're using slave labor. How can we compete? And so Canada, under Prime Minister Bennett, mounted a very fierce campaign, first of all, to try to get the Brits and all the Commonwealth countries just to buy timber from fellow Commonwealth countries and to support each other through trade and not buy cheaper stuff from the Soviet Union. Right. So when Rio went and actually saw physical evidence of slave labor being used, political prisoners being used in precisely this fashion. She wrote a series of articles that she managed to get out to the West without going through the censor. And when they appeared in the West, this really ticked off Soviet authorities. And as well, she eventually ended up writing, I said, 21 articles about that trip that she made. One of the places she stopped at was uh, Petrozavodsk, which is in Karelia, 
historically finished part of Russia that the Russians grabbed, still have. And she visited with Finns who were there from Canada and the United States, communist Finns who came to help build this wonderful future society. They'd been working in northern Ontario in the forestry industry and and in other places and, and went there and worked. But she describes visiting their communities, but also after Petra's divorce, she took off north to a place called Kem on the White Sea. And it's the administrative center for the Solovetsk prison camp, the infamous Solovetsk Island prison that went back to Tsarist times, a horrible place to be incarcerated, and they had 10,000 political prisoners there, many of them Ukrainian intellectuals, artists, Mm -hmm. who had been arrested in 1931-32 by Soviet authorities. But she wanted to go to the island and see for herself. But Kem was a closed city. They didn't allow foreigners in. She had no permission to be there, but she took the train, and because she was totally fluent in Russian and knew how things worked, Got off the train, the train left, and it only came every couple of days. So she had a couple of days, you know, like three days there, before the next train came. And she uh, got a room and described in very moving terms coming to this hotel and not in the greatest shape. And there's this sort of sad sack woman mopping up the lobby. She asks, you know, where's the dishorna, where's the, the manager? And she says, well, she's upstairs folding linen. So she went upstairs. She showed her a room, which was classic. You know, the bed was like... Know, sagging mattress, mm-hmm. springs, uh, broken window, dust. Mm. Uh, but she's sort of great. She was already hardened and used to conditions in the Soviet Union. She was thrilled to get it. And this cleaning lady who was uh, working in the, in the lobby came upstairs to dust and Rhea laughed. It's a nervous laughter. She couldn't believe that she pulled this off. But she, here she was in this closed city. She had a room. As she said, she gate crashed Kim. And this woman, who was very sad, said, well, you go to tell the world what's going on here, how horrible. There were a lot of their women working there whose husbands were in prison hmm. at the train station. There were all these women coming, hoping to catch a glimpse of their husband, which was hopeless. Who had been, you know, Husbands who had been sentenced to 10, 15 years incarceration and everything. Mm-hmm. It was a really, really depressing place. Yeah. And she saw gangs of thousands of political prisoners being taken off to the forest to harvest wood and stuff. And this is despite the Soviets denying publicly and repeatedly that they use slave labor. So this was very damaging to them that uh, yeah. the story got out with an eyewitness account. Yeah. Rhea got back to Moscow and two women from Atlanta, Georgia, described as society girls, had decided to go on a great adventure and their goal was to drive to Moscow and then to drive south to the Central Asian Republics of the Soviet Union. So they arrived in Moscow and they start planning this big trip. They heard about Rhea and spoke to her. And so these three women get in this car that they packed as with as much food, spare tires, gasoline, anything that they could get onto this vehicle and headed south from Moscow at the end of August, August 30th. The first night that they spent at Tolstoy's estate in Yasnaya Polyana and uh, through Kursk, and they arrived in Kharkiv, and it's in Kharkiv where they begin to see evidence of starvation. In the Russian part, there's still food. It wasn't a problem. You could buy food in the markets and everything like that. They get to Kharkiv, and she describes seeing hungry people on the streets. And while she's there, this girl comes up to her when she's in the hotel and introduces herself. My name is Alan Mertza. I lived nine years in New Toronto. My father worked at the Massey-Harris factory there. We came here three years ago because under this ambitious five-year plan of Stalin's, they were throwing up factories everywhere. There's a big tractor factory that they built in Kharkiv, and so they came to work there. But this woman tells her, she says, have you got any bread? We have nothing to eat. Now, this is a foreign worker pleading for food. She goes to the factory, actually, in the morning. They left early in the morning before the restaurant and the hotel was open. They drive to this factory, which she describes as a dump. And it was supposed to produce you know, 150 tractors a month or something. It was producing you know, one-third or a lot less, and a lot of the tractors were breaking down within short time of being put into use. Anyway, she couldn't get in to see the factory. She thought, well, there's foreign workers working here. They always have cafeterias, especially for them. Well, the cafeterias weren't open. They couldn't get any food. So they head south of the city from Kharkiv, and they're driving past these villages, and many of them are empty. There's nobody in them. There's The doors are open to the houses. The windows are open. The curtains are flapping in the breeze. And Rhea then goes, oh, so this is where these so-called kulaks were expelled from, or people fled from the famine conditions. They'd already abandoned them or, or been driven out. And finally, they see a village where there's some activity. They drive in. There's a bunch of women who are basically selling stuff from their garden. 
And so she goes and she wants to buy some milk and some eggs for the women to have some breakfast. First of all, she starts talking to these women. And nobody understands her. She speaks Russian, but they're all Ukrainian speaking. Finally, there was this kid who translated and explained that we don't want you to give us eggs and milk. We want to buy some. But they just said the collective has taken all of our livestock, chickens. We have none of that. One woman goes, you know, I live in a neighboring village here. I might be able to scare something up for you. So she gets in the car with them. They drive a couple of kilometers to this neighboring village. And the head of the village comes out. And the village head says, so you've come here from Moscow, yes, to investigate conditions, yes. He says, well, you tell the Kremlin that we are starving. We are good, loyal citizens of the Soviet Union, but they've taken everything. He says, how we're going to survive the winter once the vegetables from the gardens are gone, who knows? And he said, in the spring already of 1932, the children were eating grass like livestock. And the women started undressing the children. And you could see their distended belly and their rickety legs. And you could see the ravaging effects of famine on them. And she had a hard time looking at this. And she describes in her article saying, you know, I had to turn my eyes away. But I made a promise that I was going to tell the world about this. From there, they continued south. I mean, a lot of places, there weren't hotels. So so they go to a sanatorium in Slobyansk. And there's this room with, you know, eight or ten beds. And they said, well, you can sleep here, the three women. But the other women are really curious to talk to her and say, so is it true? You know, you're from the, from America. Is it true that workers have meat to eat and white bread? This is during the Depression. Right. Things were hard here, but workers did far better here uh, in the middle of the Depression, even without a job, than ordinary working people did there. And these women, some of them were there because they were suffering the effects of malnutrition. Wow. Uh, and she describes all of this in great detail in this series of articles. They go across the Kuban. And she describes watchtowers in the corner of these fields and guys with guns sitting there ready to shoot anybody who tries to sneak in and steal a few grains of wheat. Wow. Uh, they make it all the way to Georgia, and it's clear they're, they're waiting for her. Obviously, the secret police. They were going to kick her out. They give her 24 hours to leave the country. But the British embassy intervened. They managed to get permission for her to be sent back to Moscow under escort. And she was given two days to pack her belongings and to leave the Soviet Union. While she was packing up, who visits her? Malcolm Mugridge. I've been speaking with Yaris Balan from the University of Alberta, where he is director of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies and coordinator of the Cool Ukrainian Canadian Studies Centre. In part two of this interview, Yaris will tell us more about Rhea Kleiman's reporting on the Soviet Union and the Holodomor, and also her astonishing courage reporting as a Jewish woman in Nazi Germany. I hope you find the story of Rhea Kleiman as intriguing as we do. Until next time, Shalom. Join us again soon for another episode of Ukrainian Jewish Heritage here on Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio. And make sure that next Saturday, November 26th, that you attend Holodomor commemorations in your community, if there are any. If not, at the very least, place a lit candle in the window at sunset. Ну ми вже скінчили нашу програму, вже час додому і сказати до побачення. Але перед тим я хочу залишити вас такими словами мудрості. Людина без волі, то так, як і вояк без зброї. And our proverb of the week translates as A person without liberty is like a soldier without arms. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio here on AM 1320 CHMB Vancouver. If you miss our on-air or live stream broadcast, you'll find the podcast at our website, www.nashholos.com. There's also a link to our Patreon site there, and I hope you'll consider supporting our work with a monthly donation. And again, that's www.nashholos.com. And so our time is about up. So we'll wrap things up with a number from a young group from Winnipeg called Molodsi, and that means, of course, young people. And this is their rendition of... Ron Cahoot's famous Fly Kozak. I'm Pavlina. On behalf of all of us here at Nosh Holos and AM 1320, thanks for listening and Dobranich! Cross the steps, the Cossacks riding with his fellow Cossacks Side to side and you can feel the Cossack Full of pride and passion's grace On the way to glory, trusting in their faith To lead them on to victory and the grace of God Fighting for what you believe that has to be
the right men have to see. So won't you fly, Kazak, try, Kazak, take those tricks you try to show, Kazak, show, Kazak, that is where your heart must be, Kazak, free, Kazak, lead us all to victory. Kozak love, Kozak, such a spirit must be free Kozak be, Kozak, freedom is for you and me We are brothers for eternity Kozak chai, Kozak, take those tricks you got us go Kozak show, Kozak, that is where your heart must be Kozak free, Kozak, lead us all to victory God be with you, live Kozak love, Kozak, such a spirit must be free Kozak be, Kozak, freedom is for you and me We are brothers for eternity And now the Kozak is just a story but his legend what he lived for, he died for To no longer be his slave To another man And if that Cossack Has to die, then let him die In glory, Need the sky So you can hear of how And why he had to die that day The story lives on In hearts of men today So won't you fly, Cossack try, Cossack Take those tricks you tell us go Cossack show, Cossack Kozak free, Kozak, lead us all to victory God be with you, live Kozak love, Kozak Such a spirit must be free, Kozak be, Kozak Freedom is for you and me, we are brothers for eternity Some things men must die for. His faith in God, Ukraina, its country, and those he loves, and the Cossack Brotherhood. So won't you fly, Cossack, try, Cossack, take those tricks you taught us, go, Cossack, show, Cossack, that is where your heart must be, Cossack, free, Cossack, lead us all to victory. God be with you, live Kozak love, Kozak Such a spirit must be free Kozak be, Kozak Freedom is for you and me We are brothers for eternity Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature It's up to you how much you give And there's no regular commitment Just hit the link in the show description to support now